What we think of as death today is not really death. This still comes up over and over again. People make this mistake. They think that science proves things. It never, ever proves anything. For a statement to be scientific, it has to be sufficiently precise and allow predictions to be made from it such that it can be falsified. That's a big problem in our current culture where science is treated like a you know, capital S science, the government authority science. Believe what the scientists say. Don't ever believe stuff. But to say that aging and death are good because they give meaning to life, to me, is absolute nonsense. And in fact, it's the opposite of the truth. I guess a lot of people interested in extending their lifespan will think of cryonics as a sort of plan B. But you, you've argued that cryonics should be your plan A. Why is that? Max Moore, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. It's 1990, you're 26 years old, and you're in Southern California. What makes you change your last name to Moore? Yeah, so uh, some, it's funny. Some people think that's kind of unusual, but of course it's really not. Uh, a lot of writers change their names, so they have more uh, you know, better better writers' names because actors and so on. Um, it's also a cultural thing in certain cultures to change your name, and that's the way it was for me. Uh, there's actually two parts to it. There's sort of the positive and the negative part. On the, I guess what you could call the negative part is a lack of connection to my family name. So I was originally called O'Connor, an Irish name, but uh, as it turned out, so I found out in my 30s, I guess it was, late 30s maybe, my father was not who I thought he was. He turned out to be a Welsh person. So I really wasn't an O'Connor anyway, so I didn't really have a connection to that name. It seemed kind of silly to, to keep it, and it didn't really mean anything. Plus, as part of the extropian way of thinking, you are uh, all about self-definition, about self-choosing, you know, the Nietzschean self-overcoming and de defining a self. And so I wanted to choose a name that meant something. Uh, I liked my first name. It worked out pretty well. Uh, as that was actually very unusual back in England in the 60s. Now it's become a lot more popular. So I wanted something that worked along with that. Plus, to be honest, I, I was a big superhero fan. So a lot of superheroes have alliterative names, Peter Parker, Clark Kent, and so on. And so I wanted that to work as well. So it's, I took a, a year to think of a name that would work, uh, that wouldn't sound you know, too too odd. Um, and so, you know, Moore is a real name. There aren't that many with one O. So Thomas Moore is probably the most famous one. Um, and I, I, I chose that because it's a reminder to always become more, always to become better than you are, not to be satisfied with the way you are. So uh, one of my professors at USC back in the 90s asked me, why not Max Most? I guess like Mickey Most, the, the musician. I said, well, that'd be a horribly arrogant name, right? To say I'm the most that I can be. No, I'm, I always want to become more than I am. So that, that was really how that happened. And I did change it legally back in the early 90s. That's amazing. And what got you interested in radical lifespan extension and cryonics in the first place? You know, I get asked that so much and I don't have a great answer. It's a little bit of a puzzle. Um, I usually sort of half quit that maybe it's in my genes because it's pretty hard to explain by my background, certainly by my family who are uh, not at all interested in those ideas. Um, you know, my, my two half brothers are quite religious. My father, you know, the, the person I know is my father, was not religious at all. My mother, not really. Um, they didn't really have any interest in science and technology. So I don't know where it came from. Um, obviously, I did a lot of reading early on and you know, read some science fiction, but I think I was already into those ideas before I can really think of any of the real science fiction books on those themes, like Robert Robert Heinlein's uh, Time Enough for Love and Methuselah's Children. I didn't read those till I was probably 16 or 17, but I was already taking supplements when I was 13 and you know, seriously interested by, by that age. So I don't really know where it came from. It's uh, it's kind of a mystery, actually. But just it, and it made me very different from everybody around me. I didn't know anybody for a long time until I, I finally started finding some people in my late teens who shared my interest. It was not a common interest at the time, so uh, I don't actually really know. It just somehow it happened. <laughs> I don't have a good answer. Maybe one day I'll, I'll remember something that I've forgotten. But uh, yeah. so I guess like you were thinking very differently from those around you uh, in your teens, or early teens, or late teens. And uh, Even before that, actually, um, you know, one thing I said when I was writing about my mother, one thing I appreciated about her was she would let me experiment with all kinds of unusual ideas. I didn't go into detail on my on the Facebook post on that. But for instance, um, when I was <clears throat> probably ooh, about 10, 10 years old, something like 10 to 11, um, I came across these books, which I think one of my brothers had left behind. And I'm sure he regretted it because he'd become a hardcore Christian at the time. But books on the occult, uh, or what some people call the New Age stuff. So I read a lot of you know, stuff back then, obviously, with no critical thinking, because I was only 10 or 11. And so I was very into Lobsang Rampa, this this guy who claimed to be a Tibetan monk, whose soul had moved into the body of an Irish taxi driver. And he wrote all these, you know, really ridiculous books at, at 10 years old, very entertaining. 
um, about you know the hollow earth and this telepathic cat. And, uh, I, I I went through a lot of that stuff, a lot of the psychic stuff, and um, tried out a bunch of stuff. So I went to uh, dowsing. Familiar with dowsing, where you hold a stick and you it's supposed to move when you go over water, and they claimed I was doing that. Uh, I tried doing you know the swinging the pendulum with the power of the mind. I tried astral projecting and in, in boarding school, uh, lying in bed trying to project my my astral body and so on. Uh, I joined the Rosicrucians for a while, the one that's based in San Jose. Didn't last very long. I thought it was pretty boring, the Cartesian philosophy. Um, I joined the International Order of Kabbalists briefly, who were based in London, and I would read the Kabbalah and then write a, uh, some uh, answer some questions, write a study of it, and send it to this guy in London who would grade it. Uh, so I tried a lot of different things. And, you know, as I started to, I don't know, probably around 13 or 14, I started to figure that, well, none of this stuff really seems plausible. I started to you know, think a bit more critically about it. Uh, even though I was you know, surrounded by people reinforcing the beliefs, it just didn't really seem plausible. But there was something about it that appealed to me. And I think that was that it was supposedly a pathway to overcome some human limits, right? Telepathy is basically is like our cell phones on, on steroids. It's uh, a way of communicating with people in ways you couldn't do by other means. Uh, so I, I kind of like that idea. And I guess you could think of astral projection almost like having a, an avatar on the internet these days. So the sort of technological parallels to these ideas. Um, so I think that's probably what appealed. It was the idea of becoming something more. And again, my interest in superhero comics is also you know, kind of a crude, a crude form and generally just a physical form. There aren't that many super intelligent characters because it's hard to actually portray super intelligence in, in fiction. Uh, very, very difficult to do. Um, but uh, I, Professor Rex, I found very appealing as a character and that kind of fit my name quite well too. Uh, so I once wrote a piece for a book uh, after the first X-Men movie came out on parallels between uh, it was called From X, EX to X, X for X-Men. And it was on how could you account for mutants' powers through technology? And basically most of them you can't, but maybe some of them like regenerative capabilities for Wolverine and some of those things, maybe you could. So that's kind of a fun piece to write. So there's all that kind of mix in there. I think very early on, this idea that uh, these limitations irritated me. And a very big one of those was being stuck on this one planet. And that's something that that, that really came before life extension for me because... Uh, at five years old, watching the Apollo 11 landing and then all the Apollo landings after that, I was absolutely fascinated by space and maintained that interest. And that may have somehow led to life extension. I don't know, maybe thinking that it's going to take a long time before we get anywhere in space, which has turned out to be very much the case, disappointingly so for many decades. Um, you're going to have to live a long time to really enjoy the benefits of space. So all these kind of things, all about overcoming the gravity well, overcoming limits to life, overcoming our physical, psychological limits, but those are all kind of coming together for me, which later on, you know, in the early uh, well, late late eighties, became more explicitly the philosophy of extropy, which really encapsulated all those ideas. Can you describe the philosophy of extropy that you developed? Yeah. So um, uh, the the general concept is of transhumanism, which is basically the idea you know, to simplify as much as possible, the idea that it's both possible and desirable to use technologies to overcome fundamental human limits, obviously including aging and, and death. <clears throat> the extropian philosophy is, is transhumanist philosophy. It's a kind of a specific type. It's a bit more defined. So for instance, you could be a transhumanist and in principle, you could be a transhumanist in favor of very strong central control, very much like H.G. Wells, you know, it's very pro-technology and saw the future, but he he thought a scientific elite should control everything. That's not my kind of transhumanism at all. So extropic philosophy uh, had certain specific principles that made it a bit more detailed than transhumanism in general. One of those, you know, depending on which version is open society or spontaneous order, the idea that the best way to organize complex systems is actually by allowing, you know, free, free interactions on a market. That, that was pretty much the best way. So there are transhumanists who disagree strongly with some parts of the extropian philosophy. Uh, so if you like, it's kind of one brand of transhumanism. It's a specific brand that uh, includes includes transhumanism completely, but also is a bit more specific in its details. Got it. And let's talk about cryonics now. How do you go about explaining cryonics to someone who's totally ignorant of what it is and how it works? Uh, what I, well, yeah, that's what my, my whole book is going to be about. So how do you compress the book into, into something short? Yeah, it's interesting because it, depending on who I talk to, it, it's either practically impossible or fairly easy. So I was just coming back from England, you know, from seeing my mother, and I was uh, sitting next to a guy who asked me, you know, "What do you do for a living?" And I thought, "Oh God, okay, here we go." <laughs> uh, either I, I just kind of brush it off and just say, you know, I work for a you know, biotech research company, and hope they don't ask more questions, or I 
you know, go into the long thing. But he said, uh, when I mentioned Crowley, he said, oh, really? And so we got into a good conversation. It turns out his wife worked on the X Prize. Uh, so actually, it, it was pretty easy for him. Um, but usually I have to start off with the basic idea of cryonics is that um, it's really there's a couple of different parts to it. One is that what we think of as death today is not really death. Just like in the past, we've declared people dead, and it turns out they weren't necessarily dead because um, what we thought was dead was actually incorrect. We thought it was just the end of, of breathing, respiration, and circulation. But of course, now we know that's just clinical death, and that's often reversible. In fact, that can be reversed up to more than an hour of clinical death. So that's not it's not a line. There isn't a, there isn't a sharp line with death, and you can you know, show lots of cases where that's the case. Um, uh, the second idea really being that uh, cold slows down metabolic processes. And if death is not a sudden event, if it's a process, if you intervene early enough in that process, you can basically press the pause button on, on the dying process. You can stop the dying process. So from that, it makes sense that if you can store someone at very, very cold temperatures, cryogenic temperatures, where there is no metabolism whatsoever, that buys you decades or even centuries. Well, then you have to ask yourself, well, in that time, can you really say we'll never better fix the cancer or the heart disease or the aging problem that kills you? Can you really say that? No, it's pretty unreasonable to say that. It seems plausible that we will. Now, there's lots of challenges that remain, but the basic idea is that cryonics then it becomes an extension of emergency medicine. So when someone uh, stops breathing, typically, well, you know, a medic will do CPR and defibrillation and restart you, hopefully, in many cases. But if that's no longer feasible, because today's technology for resuscitation has hit its limits, even though it's a lot better than it was 50 years ago, even 30 years ago, um, the idea of cryonics is to be a conservative, a conservative thing. It might sound odd for cryonics, but it really is literally conserving the person rather than throwing them away. So the basic idea is that we, as soon as possible in the process, interrupt the dying process, protect the cells, cool you down to extremely cold temperatures where there's no metabolism, take you into the future. It's kind of like, uh, it's been described as medical time travel, because if you think of you know, regular medical travel, you take someone from one place, wherever they're having a problem, in an ambulance to a clinic or a hospital, uh, cross space where they can help them. But uh, cryonics is kind of like that, except we're taking them from today into into tomorrow, one day at a time, to a time where you have much greater capabilities, just as hospitals have greater capabilities than you do at home. Uh, so that's the core idea. Basically, you know, death is not an event. It's a process. We need to stop it. And the future might better fix your problem. That's, that's really the core of it. And what are some of the companies that um, provide the service? Uh, there's, there's a gradually growing number of organizations. It's still a ridiculously small amount of, of people. It's, it baffles me that it hasn't grown a lot more in the, in the decades, but uh, uh, who knows if it'll change. So the main ones, are, well, the oldest two are in the USA. There's the Aqua Life Extension Foundation, which I ran for almost a decade. That's in Arizona here. Uh, there's the Cryonics Institute, which is almost as old. Aqua was founded in 1972, so it has been going for more than 50 years now. Uh, Cryonics Institute in Michigan has been going for almost as long. Uh, 1976 it started. There is Oregon Cryonics, uh, amazingly enough, in Oregon, and they have been going for a little over 10, 10 or 12 years, something like that, and they specialize in, in brain cryopreservation. Um, there's one in Florida that I don't know a whole lot about, and nobody knows a whole lot about the person who runs it. I'm not quite sure about that one. Um, there is one in Europe, the European Biostasis Foundation, or Tomorrow Biostasis, the other part of it, uh, which you know I know very well the person who runs that. It seems very well organized, and I think it's very promising. Uh, may start to expand into the USA. Uh, there's one in Russia, which is typically Russian and pretty disastrous in terms of how it's run. Uh, it, it matters a lot how you set these organizations up, as I've written about. Uh, that was set up very unfortunately, basically unowned and run by two people, a married couple, who when they're no longer married, that becomes a big problem. So obviously that's not, not really a good way to set up your organization. Uh, you know, both Alcor and Cryonics Institute are set up very differently. A um, little bit different from each other, but they have boards of directors and they have uh, you know, long-term planning. Alcor has a very long-term patient care trust fund to maintain the money over long periods of time. You don't want to have like a small uh, partnership or non-profit or, or for-profit company for the main part of the service. Uh, I'm all in favor of for-profits for most things, but I think for long-term patient storage, you really want something that you know, is a is basically a charity that can oversee uh, oversee the funds for very long periods of time. And I've written a sort of two-part article on this. If you look at the most long-lived organizations in history, they're not private companies for the most part, except for in Japan, where you've got some exceptional family companies been around for many hundreds of years. I think the record being something like 1,400 years until they got absorbed into a bigger company. Um, and in Europe, you've got some financial companies been around for a few decades, mostly family-based. 
but for the most part, you know, think about the Catholic Church and religious organizations, universities. You know, I went to Oxford, which is the second oldest university in the world. It's been around for like half a millennium. So I think for patient storage, and that's not only that's only one aspect of Bionics, for patient storage, I think the nonprofit uh, model works very well. I think having you know a for-profit model, I don't think it's really workable yet because it's not a very profitable business. But in the long run, that would make sense for doing the response part where you're sending a team to the bedside and preparing the patient, delivering them to the organization. Um, but I, I think, and, and your membership part can be for-profit or non-profit, doesn't matter too much. But I think non-profit works for the long-term organization. Um, oh, and, and to, I guess, finish the list, uh, there's the, uh, the cryonics, uh, Southern Cryonics, it's called in Australia, and also the, um, the Neural Archive Foundation, I think they're called, also in Australia, which just do brains. So there's a few, oh, and China, of course. Uh, Yin Feng has been around there for a few years. Um, they were they were helped to get going by uh, a previous staff member of Alcor, so they got a lot of insight from them. And they're unique, and they actually have government funding. It's very, very kind of odd thing, really, that Chinese government actually supports it directly, and it's part of a, a much larger hospital. So uh, it's got kind of official official support, although, again, it's still very small there. I guess when first, when uh, most people would first hear about this, they would think, oh, this is only for rich people who are like, you know, the cost is going to be crazy expensive, but what's the cost actually like? Yeah, that's one of those one of those myths, right? There's just three things that people know about Cryonics that are wrong. One is that Walt Disney was was frozen, which unfortunately is not the case. Uh, the other is that we're in big trouble if the power goes out because patients will walk. That's not going to happen. Doesn't happen. Um, and yeah, this is another one that's only for for rich people. Well, I know that's not true because I've never been rich. I started off as a you know pretty poor uh, student in England. Um, basically, most people pay for this with life insurance, and there's a lot of different options. You can go from like a twenty eight thousand uh, dollar approach where you really don't have. I don't think it's a good idea because you don't have any people to respond to you immediately. Um, you have to arrange other people to, to get you to the organization. That's probably not a good idea. You can go all the way up to over 200,000 for a whole body, which I don't think is really necessary. I think the, the logic of chronics to me is that if you keep the brain cryopreserved, reserve, that's the thing that really matters and the rest of it you can probably regenerate. So you know, at Alcor, the, the charge for that is, is 80,000 minimum um, or 100,000 if you don't want to pay a yearly fee for the response capability. So 100,000 sounds like a lot of money, but actually, you know, over a lifetime, you spread it out, pay with life insurance, which over 90%, well, probably 95% of members pay with life insurance. Uh, so long as you're not old and, and sick when you start with your life insurance policy, that can be pretty inexpensive. So, you know, it depends on what kind of policy and how much funding. Um, you also have to allow for prices to go up over time. A lot of people somehow forget about inflation and start complaining that, you know, organizations raise their prices. Well, of course they do over decades. So you have to plan for that. But basically, my my view is if you can afford to go to Starbucks every day and get a cup of coffee, you can afford cryonics. It's a matter of priorities. Got it. And I expect there's uh, you face a lot of legal troubles dealing with cryonics. Like, uh, you, like you, I assume you can't act on a patient that uh, isn't declared legally dead. And so you have to, otherwise that would be <laughs> sort of murder or they would see that as murder. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, it's um, it's ironic because that's not true of animals. So you know, I know alcohol, for instance, and I'm sure CI also has a lot of cats and dogs and a few other other animals, and they actually can get a better cryopreservation than humans. Ironically, uh, for instance, our first dog, Oscar, uh, was a, a big golden doodle. He's cryopreserved alcohol, and when we knew, you know, he'd been around for almost 15 years—a long time for a big dog—but uh, he got valley fever and he was just really miserable, and so we decided it was time and. Um, we had our vet go to Alcor, it was actually just practically next door, and uh, anesthetized him. And they could then uh, cannulate in the blood vessels and they could actually start the procedure using anesthesia and so on while the heart was still beating. And so during the, that process, the heart eventually stops beating and you just carry on. Well, with humans, you can't do that because if you're the cause of the heart stopping, that's homicide, technically, even though the whole point is the opposite is to save the life. So, yeah, even if the person's not going to recover, if you, if you cause the heart to stop, that's homicide. So we can't do that. Um, that can be a real problem in cases when the brain is degenerating. If you think about it, uh, you know, the brain can die well before the heart gives out. And that's not good. You know, if you leave someone on a ventilator, um, the, the brain can just be degenerating and falling apart. So you're basically destroying them and not allowing them to be cryopreserved. And that's the horrifying you know, possibility that scares me is I don't want to have that happen to me. So one good development in you know, recent years in the U.S. and it's you know, in various parts of Europe uh, are the death with dignity laws, which doesn't doesn't help with everything, but in many cases it might. I know Apple's done at least two cases like this, 
But basically someone calls up ahead of time and says, look, I've had enough. I'm ready to go. I want your team to be there. That's such a date. And you can negotiate that and set a date. And then the team can be there. There's no question of, of having to rush there at the last minute and missing a plane or you know, any delay. You can actually be right at the bedside. Um, they can self-administer the medication that will stop their heart and wait for that to happen. And then the doctor declares legal death. And then you can begin with no delay at all, just seconds. Uh, so that can ha happen you know, if you're lucky in a good case. If you know the person's about to go and you have a standby team, we've done standbys for well over two weeks even, which is a long, long time. Generally, it's just a few days, and you've got to try and figure out how close the person is, because obviously doing a long standby can be very expensive. Um, but those laws make it much easier because you can actually schedule it. Now, it's limited because, again, if you've got you know, brain degeneration, that's not necessarily going to help. Um, if you can't self-administer the drug will stop your heart. It's not going to help either because the law doesn't allow a doctor to do it for you. Now, Switzerland is different. They actually have uh, make it a little bit easier there so a doctor can actually do it for you, which in case you're paralyzed, of course, would be critical. And I've seen people with ALS, including my good friend Hal Finney, who uh, you know, I talk about the cryo-crypto connection there, Hal being the first person to receive a Bitcoin. He got ALS, and I saw you know his decline was, was quite rapid. Um, and he, you know, it would have been very bad because he couldn't, he wouldn't have self-administered medication. But um, in his case, he, he decided to move from California to Arizona, and he was right here, and uh, they could take away the ventilator. That was allowed, and he said, when I can no longer communicate, take away the ventilator. And then once he stopped breathing, we are able to start. But you know, if you get paralyzed or something else like that, or dementia, that could be a very bad outcome if you haven't been able to decide when to finish your life processes before that. Got it. I guess a lot of people interested in extending their lifespan will think of cryonics as sort of plan B, something to figure out later in case technology doesn't advance so that the average lifespan increases by one year every year, by more than one year every year, which is essentially the singularity hypothesis. Um, but you, you've argued that cryonics should be your plan A. Why is that? Yes, absolutely. Uh, well, there's a number of reasons for that. One is that you just never know when you're going to die, right? You, you think, oh, I'm healthy, I'm, I'm fine. You don't know that. I've you know, seen people apparently healthy having a, a stroke or a heart attack or something else happens. Uh, you get run over by a car, you could get uh, you know, killed by terrorists. I mean, there's all kinds of ways things could go wrong. So you, you don't really know. You're taking a chance. Um, uh, another reason is that even if you're healthy now, if, well, especially if you're healthy now, this is the time to make the arrangement because you can get life insurance a lot cheaper. When you're young and healthy, it's cheap. It's just getting more expensive the longer you wait. And at some point, you may find, you may find that you have a condition that makes you uninsurable. And then what are you going to do? You have to come up with that much cash, you know, $100,000, $200,000 in cash. That's not so good. So at the very least, make your financial arrangements with life insurance, even if you don't join the, the organization and pay membership dues. Um, but yeah, people take, people take this to a ridiculous extreme. For instance, there was one guy who um, contacted alcohol when he was about 87 years old, if I remember. And he, you know, wealthy guy, multimillionaire, uh, but he didn't want to pay a few hundred dollars in membership dues a year. So he said, I'll wait. I'm only 87 after all. And of course, a few years later, when he was in his early 90s, his associates called us and said, you know, he's about to die. Can we sign him up? And well, we'll try, but it's it's not good when you contact people at the last minute. It's actually only because he previously contacted us and we already had some paperwork on him that made it possible. In most cases where people call up at the last minute, it's just not going to happen. Uh, there's too many risks. You have to make sure the family are not opposed. It has to be approved by the board of directors. There's a whole lot of conditions, really. So in his case, he managed to squeak through, but that's not recommended. Um, the other part of my argument really is that life extension may not be as close as, as people want to believe. And people say, no, I'm sure, I'm sure. You look at all this interest that's going on and things are happening. Well, yeah, I would have said the same thing 40 years ago. And I'm not kidding. I've been involved in this for a long time. I've got books sitting around here from 1980. Uh, oh, let me grab one right, right here. So this is actually by Saul Cantor, who's recently prior preserved. Uh, this book is from... The Life Extension Revolution is 1980. And if you look at this, and people quoted in the movement at the time, people thought it was just around the corner, basically longevity escape velocity, which is not a new idea. As I quoted in my article, Robert Anton Wilson said something very similar in, in the 70s. Uh, and he, you know, he quoted people like Bernard Strayler, a very eminent biogerontologist, saying, you know, massive changes are just probably just around the corner. Well, that didn't happen. So, okay, maybe it'll be different this time, but maybe it won't, right? So... Uh, I don't think you should bet on that. It could take it could take dec decades more, and again, you don't know what's going to happen in the meantime. So, to me, I think of it as like a financial portfolio, financial planning. Uh, any financial planner will tell you the very first thing you should do is to make sure you have an emergency fund, enough cash for three, six months, preferably a year, 
where if you lose your job, you know, you won't be you won't be starving, you won't be destitute or just existing on a very low income. Um, and then you can go into more speculative investments, maybe higher higher grade returns, which are more risky. Well, to me, cryonics arrangements are like that emergency fund. That's the thing you have in place first of all. And then you can do the more speculative things like taking metformin or uh, you know some of these other possible drugs or treatments or doing hormone injections or whatever. Those things may or may not work or help. Uh, we know that cryonics at least gives you a chance and there's a good backup plan. So get that in place first is my argument. And then decide basically how much risk you want to take with these treatments, depending on your age. It, it's kind of interesting in that younger people supposed to take bigger risks, but the opposite should be the case for life extension, right? For people who are getting older like me, about to touch hit 60, it probably makes more sense to take some risk because I'm having less and less time left and the gain gets bigger uh, and the risk is you know relatively smaller. For young guys like you, you probably don't want to take any major risk. You want to do the sensible stuff like exercise and diet, um, maybe you know think twice or, or, or three times before taking new experimental treatments that uh, in the past really haven't worked out well. I mean, we've got all these interesting things now, but there are dozens of treatments in the past that people were excited about and didn't really work out. Okay, what would you say are the hardest challenges we currently face in achieving indefinite lifespan? Uh, well, it's hard to say technically because you know, I'm not I'm not a biogerontologist, so I have my views on on the issues, but I don't pretend to be a you know, top expert on the on the scientific issues. And I know there's tremendous disagreement. Um, so, uh, for instance, uh, uh, at a, the alcohol conference in 2015, I invited three people to represent three very different views of aging. Uh, so we had Aubrey de Grey, who's obviously well known and has his view of basically we need to um, be able to repair cellular damage faster than it happens. And so we basically stop the aging process from da damaging you. Um, we had Michael Rose, who's an evolutionary biologist and takes a very evolutionary approach and thinks that the main approaches today are just completely wrong and basically like Newtonian physics instead of Einsteinian physics. And then we had um, uh, Josh Middledorf, who, who has a programmed view of aging. Now, these these three are very different views. It's possible there is some other view that kind of incorporates them in some way, but they all have very different emphases. And, you know, for instance, Michael Rose, I'll be doing a, probably a podcast with them, I hope, quite soon to discuss in detail. But he thinks that a lot of the current research is just has the wrong perspective, not, not necessarily all of it's worthless, but it has the wrong perspective on it. And so that might be a big obstacle to making real progress. So, you know, I can't really say what the biggest technical obstacle is. I do think that a massive obstacle is public perception and public beliefs and the rationalization of the public. Now, we're starting to see more support for life extension. Clearly, it's getting more investment. There are more people involved. I was at the Dublin conference in August, which was, you know, a few, several hundred people there. Uh, so it's improved, but still, it's very much a minority thing, which just seems crazy to me. But people still make make up ludicrous reasons why we shouldn't do anything about aging and death. But somehow it's natural and it's disturbing the natural order, as if you know, as if anything in our life is natural. You know, looking at this unnatural structure and these unnatural fibers talking to you on a natural means of communication. It's really obviously a ludicrous objection that people haven't really thought through. So what, what I think is that what people really are doing is rationalizing their fear uh, that we've, you know, for all of human history until maybe around today, um, we have had nothing we could do about death. There's just nothing we could do about it. It just absolutely stinks that death is there. You've got to die. So you better get used to it. Well, so people got used to it in one of two ways. The most popular means historically has been religion that says, oh, don't worry about it. Death isn't really death. It's just transition to a new level of experience, which is going to be much better, by the way. Uh, there'll be no, you know, no pain and no suffering and everything will be great and you're basking God's glory. I don't. I never once have got a good description of what heaven's like, by the way. It's always, it always seems kind of vague. Didn't you teach uh, uh, philosophy of religion back? Uh, I did, yeah. I thought philosophy of religion. I'd often ask my students, you know, please describe heaven. Uh, do you have a body? Do you have a family? Do you have a job? You know, and people go, I don't know. They obviously never thought about it. It's, you know, it's just a, a placeholder for something they hope to be true. Uh, the other approach, you know, become more popular in Western studies more recently, is to say, well, I don't really believe in an afterlife, but uh, you know, death is a good thing. It's a good thing we die, uh, because otherwise life would be meaningless. It would, you know, we just put off doing everything forever, and it would be boring and we need death to, to give life meaning, which to me is a complete load of crap. It's such a ridiculous thing to say. I don't know how people can say that with a straight face. I mean, they must be so blinded. Um, it's just a massive rationalization. It, it's very much like people in the days of slavery saying, well, slavery is natural. You know, we've got to keep slavery. What would society be like if we didn't have the different classes? That's the way it's always been, after all. 
course, just because it's always been that way is not any kind of justification. Now, there may be, you know, obviously there are issues that arise in terms of how do you, what a family's like, how are they structured, uh, how do you make sure that, you know, old people don't capture the institutions forever, that kind of thing. Those are, those are legitimate issues to discuss. But to say that aging and death are good because they give meaning to life, to me, is absolute nonsense. And in fact, it's the opposite of the truth. Um, my actions, are, or your actions are meaningful insofar as they affect a lot of people over time. Now, <clears throat> if, I don't, if I don't see, you know, if my actions aren't going to continue for very long, in a couple of years or decades, then I'm gone, and people eventually forget about me, that kind of limits the meaning of what I do. Whereas the longer I live, if I live for centuries or millennia, every action I take has significance extending into a vast future. So actually it becomes more meaningful over time. So I just don't really see any plausible argument that reduces meaningfulness. And you often hear smart people, you know, like um, famously Elon Musk, he has the argument that if um, if a, if we reverse aging and, you know, if we extend our lifespans, then society will stop making progress. As if that wasn't true, like hun for hundreds of thousands of years, when the human lifespan was like, I don't know, 20, 30 years old, right? The average lifespan was 20, 30 years old. And uh, it just doesn't make sense to me that we'd stop making progress if um, we extend our lifespans. I think it's more got to do with the memes that our society has. If we are in favor of progress, you know, we have the enlightenment values, like why else didn't we make progress for like all these hundreds of thousands of years? You're right. Well, obviously, there are a lot of institutional and economic factors, but it shows that, yeah, it, there certainly isn't any clear correlation between lifespan and progress in terms of you know, when people uh, lived a lot shorter lives, we made much less progress. So it doesn't seem like a major factor. The, the only kind of plausible part of that argument to me is that given the way we are today, that as we get older, we get more infirm, you know, our minds slow down, our brains start to decay a little bit. Uh, that obviously, if, if we all became like that, that would be a problem. That's, of course, not what we're proposing at all. We're not proposing a society of ancient, withering old people who can't think or help themselves. We're talking about ending the aging process, reversing it, so you could be 120 and just as spry and fit as you are at 17. Um, so that's what we're talking about. But <clears throat> that seems so obvious to me, but you have to really make sure you state that because people just assume that like, people wake up from cryo they'll be old. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you bring people back just to die again? So the whole point is you know, of chronic life extension is to reverse the aging process. So why would you be less innovative? I think actually more innovative because you have a bigger knowledge base. Now, a lot of innovation is not an entirely new idea coming out of nowhere. It's often a combinatorial issue where you've got a bunch of ideas from here, a bunch of ideas there. You put them together, you come up with something new. Well, the more you know, the more you can do that. So I think actually living longer, if anything, um, you know, might make you more innovative. Uh, the, you know, I think there's a better question with institutions, obviously, uh, if you have very centrally controlled institutions, it becomes a big problem. Like, you know, in China, there's nobody really to overthrow the people at the top, even if they're very old or infirm, although probably they're doing better than the US right now. Um, but if you have an open open society and a market system, uh, you know, you can you can change the people running things. So I think that's necessarily a big problem. It depends a lot on the form of social organization. Right. And uh, I've heard like some people accuse of cryonics and lifespan extension as a sort of a get-rich-quick scheme. But I, th I think it's one of the hardest things uh, you can possibly sell because you're challenging all of these fundamental beliefs that people have and offering an alternative which is uh, uncertain, right? Whereas most people just assume that there's a certainty. Right, exactly. You know, talking about the two things, the, the two responses before, the religious response and then the, the you know, death gives meaning to life response, they, they both require certainty. They both, um, I think they both arise those rationalizations come about because we want certainty. Humans like certainty. We don't. We hate this kind of uncertainty and ambiguity. And cryonics, unfortunately, can't offer that certainty. We're not saying, well, you know, sign here and we guarantee we're going to bring you back in 2084 or whatever. We can't do that. It's massively uncertain. You know, maybe you'll maybe you'll have a, a stroke and your brain will be so badly damaged we can't even get you cryopreserved effectively. Maybe the organization will go bust. I mean, there's all kinds of things that can go wrong. And we're very explicit about that. But that's not what people want to hear. I mean, that's why it's having such a hard time, because we're too honest. Maybe we need to start, uh, you know, a completely dishonest approach that guarantees that uh, these things will happen. But unfortunately, that's just not going to happen and, and shouldn't happen anyway. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it's people like their uncertainty. That's why we have so much religion. And because um, it offers certainty, it offers a central a central authority that can answer everything. I think it's why statism is popular, because, you know, the, the experts running things from the center know better than everybody else, which obviously they don't. 
um, that it's a big problem. And that's part of what, as a transhumanist, I hope we'll eventually overcome that, that we'll figure out what it is in our brains from our evolutionary history that makes us need great certainty, which may, may have worked a lot better in a primitive environment, right? When things were very simple and there's a tiger running at you, you don't want to sit and deliberate, hmm, should I run? Should I do B or C? No, you need to do something right away. But today we don't have many lions attacking us. We have complex geopolitics and extremely complicated economic issues. And having that kind of, uh, you know, a fear reaction or a need to be certain about one policy is, is a disaster. That's not what we need today. But just knowing that, is, many people are aware of that, but knowing that is one thing, acting on it is, is quite different. Uh, even very, you know, very explicit rationalists can have a very hard time actually being rational because it's not really the way the human brain works. You know, my, my big hope really is that um, the right kind of artificial intelligence maybe, you know, combining with the way humans think might be able to, to help us think better. And I don't think the current artificial intelligence is going to do that. But I think in the long term, that could be a, a good way of humans and machines merging to actually improve the way we think. At least that's my optimistic view. <laughs> yeah. Can you expand on that a bit? Because uh, obviously, we've seen such a rise in doomerism right now uh, with artificial intelligence. <clears throat> but <clears throat> Excuse me. No, still recovering a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so first of all, uh, in my view, we're not probably not having uh, artificial general intelligence or super intelligence around the corner. I mean, I could well be wrong about that, but I'm, I don't think we're that much closer to, than we were 30 or 40 years ago. Um, we do have this incredibly neat technology, you know, LLMs, which can do some pretty amazing stuff. Uh, you know, image generators, um, things that can really gather information very effectively. But they're not they're not really intelligent. They don't really know what they're doing. They produce these hallucinations or bullshit, as Mark Miller prefers to call it. Um, so they're very helpful and I think very promising with the plugins. But they're not, to me, they're not going to take over humanity. They're not going to uh, take control of everything. Now, <clears throat> it used to be, you know, back in the late 80s, early 90s, when I really was studying this stuff in graduate school, there was a big battle between the, the people into the neural network approach, which has now become dominant, and the symbolic processing approach, which was more dominant at that time. Um, and, you know, Marvin Minsky kind of killed off the, the, the neural networks approach for a while. Not really his fault. He just proved that in a two-layer system, there's a strict limitations to what it can do. Um, but, of course, you put in more layers and new things are possible. So he didn't actually rule that out. But for some reason, people took his, his very specific narrow conclusion and kind of forgot about the rest of the field for a while, which is very unfortunate. Uh, but now the neural networks approach is, is very popular and obviously doing some interesting things, but I don't think it's going to lead to general artificial intelligence um, or certainly not super intelligence. But, you know, I don't know when the next advance might be. I mean, it could be decades. It could be a couple of years. Nobody really knows. Um, what I do think is we should not be trying to stop this. Uh, first of all, to me, there's a, there's a very common fallacy, which is that uh, we should just look at the dangers only. And we see this in in different ways you know, on the extreme end we've got the people believing uh existential risk is, is really a big issue here and the ai is about to you know if it, it changes a little bit more it could just wipe us all out well that's a big complex argument i just again i don't think that kind of ai is near yet uh i think it could be a real problem at some point and we have to keep an eye out for that but even if it is a real problem which is not right now in my view um you can't just look at the existential risk you have to look at the existential opportunity on the other side and the fact is that without ai i'm going to die that's a pretty big downside. Lots of billions of people are going to die because we, we can't do anything about aging. And again, you know, again, back to the kind of how optimistic are you about solving the aging problem? I've been tracking this for decades and we haven't, we haven't made a single tiny advance in maximum lifespan, not one. The French woman, you know, 1997, she still holds the record. Nobody's beaten that since. So we're making actually zero progress in decades. Um, obviously, we've become a little healthier in old age by treating. Uh, during geriatrics and so on, but we're not living longer on the maximum and other things. So without AI to help us, I think I'm probably dead and billions of other people are. That's a pretty huge downside. And uh, it's the same, I think, with um, climate climate risk and, uh, you know, people arguing for less fossil fuels. If we do that, then firstly, like, we're not going to allow people in poor countries to, you know, make that progress and also have... Um, air-conditioned rooms and cars and that they can drive um so it's just you know it's just like basically not caring about all those people and uh it's just gonna literally degrowth our society which is a terrible terrible thing although that philosophy is getting some traction lately yeah it, it's, uh, it's these false alternatives again um uh, first of all i think that there is a massive 
exaggeration of the problem of climate change. I think it, you know, it's a very complex issue, which I've been following for many years. And it's a really fascinating issue because it has so many aspects to it, not just the, you know, even on the scientific end, there are also different areas of science. It's not just, you know, climate models. It's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's wind and clouds and uh, the sun. There's many aspects to it just scientifically. And then there's a lot of other issues in economically and socially. How do you best respond? Do you, do you mitigate? Do you adapt? Do you try to completely change our energy system, which is a current popular disastrous approach, I think. Um, so first of all, I think, you know, there's no real evidence that there's a climate emergency. And it's become a very popular view that there is an emergency. And to me, it's exactly the same thinking I've seen for decades and decades, uh, whether it's the ozone hole or genetic engineering or you know, crop, genetic crop, crops. Uh, over and over again, you see the same pattern where something is this horrible disaster about to happen. And it never does. Uh, not to say there can't be a disaster. I'm actually somewhat worried about uh, genetically engineered viruses. I think that's actually probably the largest threat. Um, plus asteroid collisions with the Earth, which are unlikely in any one year, but I think it's a good idea to do something about that. Um, we're just starting to do that. But I, I just don't see, um, you know, three millimeters of rise, two to three millimeters rise a year in ocean levels as, as a huge existential crisis. I mean, talk to the people who live in the Netherlands, you know, who live basically underwater and manage very well, thank you very much, even with much earlier technology. So I think it's a very gradual change. I actually think there's also, it kind of connects to the aging thing, I guess. Part of the reason people say that life extension is bad is because they think that the current age is somehow right. Like the age we died is the right age. Well, but it's different than it was 100 years ago or 200 years ago. Why is it right? Well, why is the current temperature of the planet the right temperature? I think actually it's too cold. I mean, historically, you look at it, but we could be heading towards another ice age, which is be, would be a disaster. It's a lot worse than getting warmer. Um, you know, it's very hard for agriculture to flourish. And when ice sheets are advancing, it's very bad news. Um, so yeah, why is this the right temperature? Why would a little bit warmer really be a problem? Obviously, there are some adaptation issues, depending on where you are. For most of the world, it's not an issue. Some places, uh, you know, people right by the, the oceans may slowly lose some land. Um, but it's so slow that we can adapt to it pretty easily, I think. What we shouldn't be doing is destroying our capability to adapt by imposing inefficient, very expensive energy and shutting down uh, the energy sources that have produced Western civilization and sustained it all this time. Uh, I think, you know, making a gradual transition, letting the market do that, you know, internalize the externalities, let the market do it, stop subsidizing very in inefficient, uh, ineffective things like solar and wind, which are very unreliable. You have to build up backup systems, which they don't usually add those into the cost. When they say, oh, this is really cheap, it's not because they're not comparing like with like. They're not comparing... Uh, so even on the environmental impact, they usually don't look at all the stuff you have to dig out of the earth and where it's dug out of and include that. Um, they don't include the backup systems that you absolutely need. Otherwise, you can have big problems when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. So they don't. So, yeah, the levelized cost of energy thing is really a fraud because it doesn't include a lot of those things. And when you do put them in, you realize actually it's pretty expensive. So, you know, solar seems to have some uses, um, but probably for heating water, it probably makes some sense. But even here in Arizona, which is probably the best place on the planet, it doesn't. It doesn't make sense for us to have household solar, um, you know. So in space, you know, it makes a lot more sense in space because the sun can shine all the time. Uh, so it could make sense there. Although I think nuclear reactions are probably also pretty good in space. Um, and something I've, I've argued, you know, for over forty years since I was a teenager is we need more nuclear power, and that's something that's just beginning to creep onto people's radars a little bit. Because uh, if you really look at it, it's very clear that nuclear is the least polluting source of energy. Uh, people have all kinds of wrong ideas about it, that you know, it's, it's had these massive disasters. And when you actually look at these supposed disasters, they don't look very massive. I mean, uh, in India, for instance, you know, there've been a number of dam bursts over the decades, which have killed large numbers of people, right? Because all the villages downstream just got blown away, really large numbers of people. I never hear that mentioned. I was like, you know, hydropower, oh, that's fine. Uh, you know, Three Mile Island, which is the classic one in, in the US, people think of as a massive disaster, but actually killed zero people. Um, and then, you know, even in uh, in Japan, in uh, Fukushima, practically everybody who died was because they evacuated unnecessarily. It wasn't because of, the, of of radiation itself. So radiation is kind of an invisible threat that people get scared about because they don't understand it very well, not realizing that actually I'm radioactive and so is the earth and you know, so is the sky. It's a matter of degree. And the uh, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission in the U.S., has adopted a ludicrous standard, basically the, the Alara standard, low is reasonably attainable, where every time there's an improvement in safety, they just ratchet up the requirements, even though they're already far too strict as it is, which basically means nuclear can never be economical because they just keep making it more expensive. But we know that it can be can be uh, very economical because it was in the you know, earlier days, 50s, 60s, 70s. 
And even as recently as around 2010 in South Korea, where they weren't overregulating at the time, it cost about a quarter of what it does in the USA today. So it's it's really a matter of regulation. And right now, there's actually a battle to prevent the renomination of the current uh, head of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission because he is so anti-nuclear. So you've got the guy you know, regulating the whole industry who's very anti-nuclear. So there's a strong effort to try and stop this guy running the agency and hopefully introduce some better rules. And certainly in, in India and China and developing countries, you want a lot more nuclear. Uh, it's you know, it's clean. It's very reliable. It's got a very high reliability rating. Um, and you know maybe nuclear fusion will come along at some point, but that's one of these things, obviously, as people say, is always 40 years in the future. Maybe we'll get there. But uh, the recent breakthroughs don't seem to me to be that that remarkable right now. They, they don't really pay back the energy if you look at the full costs. Uh, so nuclear fission is still the way to go. And of course, with better designs than we had in the past. One of the things about Chernobyl, of course, that people often don't mention, and again, that wasn't as big a disaster as people make out, even though it was the worst possible design, typical Soviet system, right, where you had a uh, a water-cooled uh, carbon, carbon-fueled system basically set up to have a fire problem and with no containment building whatsoever. So that's exactly the opposite way you should design anything. Now, the newer designs are, are inherently safe. You know, if things go wrong, they'll automatically shut down. You have to keep doing things to keep them working. Um, there's a lot of you know, more micro-reactor designs that could be good for, for more local uh, communities. I'm actually quite proud that <clears throat> here in the Phoenix area, we have the largest nuclear power station in the country, at least until they finish that one in Georgia. So uh, I, I think that was a good thing. Yeah, I definitely agree. So you wrote an essay titled Pan-Critical Rationalism, where you mentioned Karl Popper's epistemology, critical rationalism. How does pan-critical rationalism differ from Popper's critical rationalism? <clears throat> oh, gosh. <clears throat> I probably have to dig back into, into that now in some detail to say exactly how that's the case. Um, it, it's pretty similar. Uh, pan-critical rationalism, I really get from uh, William Warren Bartley in his book, The Retreat to Commitment, who's, who's a very strong Popperian. Um, I think he just elaborated more effectively than Popper did in general. Popper provided a, a good criterion for scientific, uh, you know, for what is a scientific statement that has to be, uh, it's not something you can ever prove. And this still comes up over and over again. People make this mistake. They think that science proves things. It never, ever proves anything. Um, you can never prove anything, really. All you can do is, for a statement to be scientific, it has to be sufficiently precise and allow predictions to be made from it such that it can be falsified. And so long as it's not falsified, you know, for a long time, Newtonian mechanics seemed to work really well. Everything we tested on, it worked. It worked for throwing a ball. It, it worked for movement of planets. It worked for everything in between. So we thought, you know, a couple of hundred years, oh, this must be right. Well, no, <laughs> it's not right. Because Einstein came along and said, well, let's do the Michelson Morley experiment and, you know, figure out that actually, no, light bends to gravity and, uh, you know, time is not absolute, it's relative, depending on velocity and so on. So it, even though it was a couple of hundred years, it turned out that wasn't true. And it was even with geocentrism, the idea that the Earth is the center of the universe, that was around for even longer. And all the experts agree, it's consensus science, so it must be right. Nope, it's completely wrong. The same with phlogiston and caloric, you know, caloric being um, this invisible fluid that explained heat transfer. It seemed actually like a pretty good theory for a long time. Because you get two two large, let's say two metal uh, bodies, if they have a large surface together, uh, you'd expect the heat to flow faster, right? If it's a fluid, because there's a lot of area, so it's like a fat pipe, the heat would flow faster. And that's exactly what happens. Whereas if you have two thin rods, the heat transfer is slower. Well, that's because there's a, a smaller channel for the fluid. It's the only problem with that is there's no such thing as caloric. It doesn't exist. Heat is just mean molecular kinetic energy. So it doesn't matter how much. Uh, apparent support you have for a theory, doesn't matter how many you know plausible arguments you have for it, how many observations that have supported it, it can still be completely wrong. Or as in case of Newtonian physics, it can be kind of right as part of a larger system that explains why it works as well as it does. Um, so that's a big problem in our current culture where science is treated like a you know capital S science, the government authority science, believe what the scientists say. Well, don't ever believe stuff, you know, in science, it's it's there's never a consensus that you can rely on. Now, obviously, this is a massive consensus on something that's been around for a long time. That is some reason to believe it's true, certainly. But when you see people who are very knowledgeable in the area strongly disagreeing, giving good reasons why, don't, don't get too certain about things, especially when it's central authorities telling you these things, because they have their own reasons for doing so. So science is, is not about certainty, and, and Popper made that clear. It's really about being open to testing. And that's why, for instance, he wrote a book on, uh, uh, what's that called, The Open Society? <clears throat> where he he looked at uh, Marxism, for instance, Marxism being completely non-refutable theory, because no matter what happens, 
they just make some adjustment to explain why there wasn't a global workers' revolution. And, uh, you know, even Marx's own time, uh, he would have known, actually, when he wrote Capital, that wages were actually going up. You know, it was a long time when they didn't because of population growth was very rapid. And even though technology and the economy were developing, it couldn't keep up. But as population started growing less rapidly, wages started going up. He just ignored that. And, you know, Marx is steadily just write off things like that. Uh, he also doesn't like... Uh, uh, Sigmund Freud, for the same reason that basically Freudian psychology is, you can't refute it because it, it's not specific enough. It doesn't make testable predictions. It's very kind of wishy-washy. Everything can be uh, explained it's, it's, with it's, that theory, right? Like you can have any observation and you can just... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like dream interpretation. You can make up anything you want. So it right. becomes irrefutable. Yeah. So so, so really pan-critical rationalism is taking... Uh, the rationalism, first of all, is basically the idea that the best guide to reality is reason. Uh, it's not It's not hope, it's not faith, it's not feelings. Feelings can provide some information, but they can also be wrong. So you need to have you know, use your senses and reason to figure out what is what is plausible and what isn't. Um, I mean, it does look, to, it really looks to us like the sun is rising, right? But the sun doesn't really rise. It, there's an orbit going on. That's another thing where your senses can mislead you. Um, so pan-critical rationalism is basically applying Popper's critical rationalism to everything, including itself. So people will say, well, but you can't prove that, you know, science works. Well, you can't prove that we should use logic. Well, no, but I don't have to. That's the mistake of some forms of rationalism, that they end up faith saying we have to have faith in the scientific method or faith in logic. Well, pancritical rationalism says, no, we don't have to have faith in anything. But if you can show me that you can operate without logic, go ahead and do it. But, you know, that doesn't tend to work very well. So we keep using it. Um, but you don't have to actually be able to prove anything. You have to just hold things open to disproof. So to me, you know, I think transhumanism it doesn't have to use pancritical rationalism. You could have a different epistemology. You could have something like Ayn Rand's view of epistemology, for instance, which is based on axioms, which she believed were absolutely certain and very, very Cartesian. You know, Descartes also thought you start with basically God, who you could prove, uh, well, first of all, you can prove that you must exist because you're thinking, which also doesn't really follow. Um, and then he thought he proved God, and then you can build up knowledge like a foundation. And Ayn Rand actually, uh, despite her despising those philosophers, was very similar in starting with axioms and building knowledge on top of it. But that's not really the way it works. Um, and you know, so I can imagine transhumanists who had a kind of a Cartesian Randian approach, but I think a pancritical rationalism is a much more intellectually healthy approach. But again, uncomfortable because you can never say for absolutely certain that you know something beyond any doubt. We have to get over that need for certainty. Yeah, definitely. And you you termed this uh, uh, the proactionary principle as compared to the precautionary principle, which we've been talking about with AI and climate. Um, could you explain what the proactionary principle is? Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. The proactionary principle arose from um, something called the Vital Progress Summit that we had in 2004, I think it was. Uh, we had a lot of eminent people come together to discuss uh, a couple of things, really. There was the, the Presence Commission, uh, Presence Bioethics Commission, like Leon Cass, um, Francis Fukuyama, people like that, uh, Michael Sandel, philosopher, who, who were all very... Uh, not just anti-transhumanist, but basically against using biotechnology to improve anything. Um, and I actually quite recommend the book Beyond Therapy by Cass because it's like the opposite of transhumanist. Uh, but he takes all the issues very seriously. He doesn't dismiss the idea of life extension or cognitive enhancement. He takes them seriously. He just really dislikes them from his philosophical point of view. Um, it's interesting also because he's Jewish and he's very frustrated that other Jews haven't been more favorable to his views. In fact, you know, Judaism actually seems to be quite favorable to life extension. Life is basically good in Judaism. Uh, so he's very frustrated that you know most Jews don't have a big problem with life extension, it seems, or those who write about it. Um, so there, there was this kind of background where the, for instance, stem cell therapy couldn't be funded by the government because of this, this council. They said that that's not allowed. Um, it, it could have been worse. They could have banned private funding as well, but fortunately that didn't happen. Um, <clears throat> so there were all these people basically very fundamentally against change and we also see that environmentalist movement, of course, where you, you can't have any kind of new form of energy. You can't really, it's, it's now biting them in the back because it turns out that, you know, to get permits for wind and, and solar, which affects massive amounts of land, people have set up systems now where you can sue to stop things, which you originally used for nuclear power and oil and so on. It's now being used for their favorite energy source. So it's kind of ironic. Um, so a lot of the discussions of bioethics and technology tended to be on the principle of um, let's be safe, let's be cautious. Now, you know, caution obviously has its place in things, and you know, don't look, bef uh, don't look before, uh, no, no, don't leap before looking. Right? This seems like a, a sensible thing in many contexts, but it's like all these sayings. It has its place, but it doesn't universally work. Um, 
the problem with the precautionary principle, which comes in different flavors, basically comes down to don't do anything for the first time or don't take any risks no matter what, especially if they're serious risks, completely ignores all the positive sides. So it comes back to existential risk and existential opportunity here. It's all about the negatives, where clearly if if we'd, if we'd follow that principle, we wouldn't exist. You know, humanity would have been stifled early on. The first person to invent fire, uh, you know, bring it to the cave. Hey, it's nice and warm here. Are you kidding me? We, we could catch fire. Get rid of that thing. So no fire, you know, uh, everything would have stopped. So fortunately, we didn't take that seriously back then. But now we, we seem to have become such a sort of settled into our current environment and level of technology that we don't want to take any risks anymore, uh, even though there are still massive benefits. And so the proactionary principle arose from uh, the discussion at the Vital Progress Summit, where I kind of put together an alternative principle, which I think is a lot more balanced and comprehensive. It actually breaks down into a five or 10 sub-principles, basically saying that start with the recognition that progress is good. Overall, you know, things obviously can go wrong, but overall progress is clearly good. So we should protect it, protect the freedom to innovate. That's critical for our humanity. Uh, beyond that, when we're making specific decisions, don't just take a poll of the public or you know, let some experts decide things. Use the best available methods for making decisions. And so that leads into a lot of discussion of things like decision markets and um, you know, all kinds of ways of trying to de-biasing our thinking. Uh, it has other sub-principles like don't, uh, don't weigh uh, human cause risks more heavily than natural risks. So obviously nature has tremendous threats to humanity. It can wipe us out. We get tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes. I was just reading today about the, uh, the volcano in, in Pompeii, which is now, they apparently have like several hundred earthquakes in the last couple of months and the signs that it might blow again. Uh, so there are massive risks there. Obviously the tsunami some years ago in South, South uh, East Asia that killed vast numbers of people. These are massive risks. Um, so we can't say, you know, let's just focus on the human risk that maybe human genetic engineering will cause a problem or there's possible problems of genetic crops, even though they're massively increasing productivity. We have to look at the benefits. So there's really a number of aspects to the proactionary principle. But it's basically saying recognize that innovation, innovation is of critical value uh, and let's think careful and balance the pros and cons is kind of the most important parts of it. That's amazing. Last question. You mentioned that you're writing a book on cryonics. Um, when can we expect it to come out? Uh, I have no idea. I have to finish the actual draft, first of all. Um, I'm getting you know, comments as I go. I, I hope to have finished a full draft um, early in 2024, and then it's a matter of getting it published, and I have no idea how long that will take. So uh, obviously I would like to get a real publisher, get the, you know, have to have a real name like we did with the Transhumanist Reader. That was really good. Um, but if that doesn't work, because this is a kind of a controversial and, and difficult topic, I'm hoping I can write it well enough that even if people disagree with it, they'll still enjoy reading it and get a proper publisher. If not, you know, there's always self-publishing. So I'm hoping, you know, sometime later in 2024, hopefully we'll see it in some form. But, you know, if you get a publisher, it can take a long time. Uh, it can take a year or two sometimes before they, they've done all the edits and release it. So it could be a little while. But you'll see bits and pieces on my blog and on the Biostasis Technologies blog. I'll be extracting bits as I go along and uh, communicating them there. But my goal really is that I, I thought, you know, people have asked me, what book would you recommend on cryonics? And I kind of scratched my head and can't come up with a good answer. Um, you know, it's still a pretty good book is Robert Ettinger's The Prospect of Immortality, uh, but that's, you know, from the 1960s. So it's technically very out of date. Plus it has an unfortunate title in my view in that we shouldn't really be talking about immortality. And I used to do that too many years ago, but I stopped doing that because really that's not what we're talking about. We can't guarantee immortality. It may not even be physically possible. What we're really talking about is the, the end of aging and, and inevitable death. It doesn't mean you might not die after a few thousand years or million years. So I think that's unfortunate also because it presses people's religious buttons if you talk about immortality. So I wouldn't want to use that title. So my, my approach is very much to try to make it part of the mainstream. I describe cryonics as an extension of emergency medicine, right? And that's the approach I'm taking. I, I just finished a chapter basically where I looked at the history of resuscitation medicine, going back to the old days where they used bellows to try and pump air into people's lungs. Uh, they put people on horses to bounce them around to get the air moving. They tried all kinds of things. So it um, <clears throat> wasn't very effective until you know the 50s or 60s when we started working out cardiopulmonary resuscitation and uh, defibrillation and things like that, and we're still getting better. More recently, we've added methods of cooling patients, which obviously starts to get into, into the, the cryo area, um, slowing down people's metabolism so we can do surgery on them, have you know three or four times as long to do surgery by slowing metabolism. Um, NASA is interested in something like hibernation, where you could slow down the body so that you'd have much less need for oxygen and food on long space voyages. Uh, the military is interested in something similar because 
know, if you have a soldier on a battlefield who's you know badly injured and you have to get them to to help, uh, if you could slow them down, put them in some kind of suit or system that slow down the metabolism, you could buy them a lot more time and you might save a lot more lives. So it's it's not a thing that's just on its own. It ties into uh, you know, resuscitation medicine, emergency medicine, ties into space possibilities, the military possibilities. Um, obviously, also, when you point out that there are millions of people walking around today who are cryopreserved, they were just embryos at the time, people start to make connections. Oh, that's right. I guess, you know, when people say you can't freeze cells because it blows them up, well, that can't be right. Otherwise, there wouldn't be people walking around who are frozen embryos. Uh, when you point out that we have, you know, we freeze corneas and heart valves and skin cells and many other tissues and rewarm them successfully, uh, it breaks down this idea that there's some magical thing about cryonics. Well, it's somehow impossible because the cells explode, which, you know, I've heard from people who should know better. <laughs> I have a YouTube video um, commenting on Michio Kaku, the popular physicist, and he did a YouTube video where he just got everything wrong. He just obviously so arrogant, he didn't think he'd need to do any research. And he, he had that myth that the cell explodes. It doesn't explode. Um, what actually happens if you don't protect the cells, as we do in cryonics, what actually happened is that uh, the cells will dehydrate, and so they will kind of shrink to a certain degree. It doesn't destroy them. Uh, ice forms in the, between the cells, and it doesn't actually do a lot of mechanical damage. It might do a little bit of, of the kind of grinding and poking, but mostly the damage is from uh, the changing concentration of the salts in the cells, because uh, as they dehydrate, the concentration goes up, and that could be very bad for the cells. So in cryonics, what we do, and, and embryos and other tissues too, what we do these days is vitrify them rather than freeze them. And vitrification comes from the word from uh, Latin word for glass. Basically, when you vitrify, you introduce a very high concentration of the cryoprotectant solution. And as you cool, instead of crystallizing, it just gets more and more viscous until it holds everything in place without doing any damage. Uh, so that we know that works for, for embryos, skin cells, corneas, eggs, sperm, all kinds of things. So now the goal is to make that work for organs. And uh, you know, there's been some progress there. Uh, Greg Fay and others at 21st Century Medicine have had some success with rat kidney uh, cryopreservation. And just a couple of months ago at, uh, oh, I'm forgetting which university it was. Um, oh, I'm forgetting right now. But you know, one of the top universities, they successfully and repeatedly, and this is important, they repeatedly were able to cryopreserve, rewarm rat kidneys, and they functioned fine. Now, you know, 21st century medicine managed to do this once, I think, and had some, or well, once or twice, had some real issues with it. But now it's been done repeatedly. We know that in principle, it can be done for mammalian organs. Well, the brain is a mammalian organ. So don't tell me that cryonics is impossible when we're already you know, on the way. So the big problem really is that the larger the volume of tissue we have to cryopreserve, it's not actually the cooling part that's so difficult. It's the, the rewarming part. Um, rather paradoxically sounding, as you warm a biological system up, uh, ice can form as it warms up, it recrystallizes, and that can be very damaging. And so the trick is to better rewarm rapidly enough. Uh, that's not a problem. So with embryos uh, and you know small small tissues like that, corneas even, you can warm pretty rapidly, uh, and it's not a big problem. But with the whole organ, you can imagine it's a lot more difficult. But there are ways of doing that with nano warming, where you have nanoparticles that can be heated up, uh, radio frequency warming, all kinds of new methods that seem to be making that possible. Well, if we can do it for a rat kidney, we should be able to do it for a human heart or a human kidney before long, and a human brain. So uh, the other thing to point out really that's very important is that the fact that we cannot revive a human being from cryopreservation today, or even a whole human organ yet, is really irrelevant to the point of cryonics, because <clears throat> what we have to do today is get people cryopreserved under good conditions, so that the brain is preserved, the memory is preserved, the personality is still potentially there. We don't have to bring them back today. We can wait for, for, for decades or even centuries if necessary. Now, obviously, we don't want it to be any longer than, than it has to be because other things can go wrong over time. But if we, we don't have to solve the revival problem for cryonics to make sense today. Um, and we think it's pretty reasonable that we will solve these problems because we are solving them. We're getting better and better, as I just showed. And it kind of puts us in the position of someone like, say, Leonardo da Vinci, who could design flying machines that he couldn't build. He didn't have the tools or the materials that they were actually impossible to build in his day. Uh, technically impossible, but not scientifically impossible. Now we can build them. And some of those designs actually work. Um, so, you know, people often say, well, when will you revive the first person? I like to say, well, it's kind of like asking someone in 1890, when will we land someone on the moon? Like, how do I know? We've got to develop propulsion systems, life support systems, and so on, um, you know, for the first computers. So it's going to require probably some kind of molecular nanotechnology or something equivalent to that and, and able to repair cells. So it seems to me it's very likely possible. I can't say absolutely 100% because nothing's 100%. 
uh, it seems highly likely we will develop those technologies. So it just makes sense to you know take the steps you can today, not to let your your brain get destroyed permanently. Right, Max. Thank you so much for your time. I highly recommend that everyone subscribes to your Substack, Extropic Thoughts, and reads your essays. Links will be in the description below. Um, any final thoughts you'd like to end with? Uh, yeah, keep reading your blog, which is very good. Uh, I think we're very much on the same page. And uh, I think Substack is actually a really good medium for for these, I was going to say progressive ideas, but it means something different these days, the opposite of what it should mean. I think the people who are pro-technology, who think that technology is generally a good thing, we should have more of it, uh, make more technological progress. Substack is a good place to be compared to the, the regular media. So yeah, look at your Substack, uh, check out mine and Biostasis Technologies, and you'll find lots of other recommendations from there. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it.